Welcome to Pep Talk, a podcast from the Professional Edge Project. My name is JP Edgington, I'm the head coach and creator of the Professional Edge Project, and in this podcast, I'll be talking about how we can enhance our personal and professional effectiveness, how we can increase our mental resilience, how we can increase our calm, our composure, our confidence, our capacity and our capability, all for the benefit of our professional and our personal lives, since each has an impact on the other. If you like what you hear, I'd love to hear from you. It would be great if you could share it as well. But more importantly, more important than that, if something I cover resonates, then I urge you to take some action off the back of it. Even if it's something small, take some action off the back of it. Information is pointless without application. Thanks in advance. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy days to listen to this, but I really hope that you get some value, you get something that can actually make your lives a bit easier, give you some clarity on your day, give you some more confidence and allow you to go out there and and do what you do best. Let's go. Pep Talk, episode 37. Okay, and today we are talking composure at assessment. Been a while, uh, I promised this a little while ago, um, but hey, things get in the way and um, we're here now and I've got a lot of very effective little approaches, perspectives uh, to share with you to help you be more composed at assessment. Uh, now, composure is, is defined as the feeling of being calm, confident, and in control. Okay, that's how it's defined in, in the dictionary. And I think it's sometimes useful to look at what the opposite of that is. What are we looking to avoid? It's anxiety, it's overwhelm, it's nervousness. It's not being in control. And in a minute we're going to get on in, to in control of what? And that's quite a key element is the control bit. Um, Confident, the opposite of confident is self-doubt. Okay, so a big thing of this is about avoiding getting in our own way where the... Our thoughts run away with us, we start catastrophizing or we start wishing we'd done something differently in preparation for our assessment. And none of this helps us and it actually distracts us distracts us or detracts us from the thing that we should be doing on assessment and you know the thing we are looking to avoid being deferred or fail we actually end up increasing the chances of because we're worried about failing we end up being more likely to you know fail or not deliver um, as we want to. And obviously nervousness, anxiety, overwhelm, th- th- there's a huge spectrum as to how that can show up. It can be a little bit of butterflies or it can literally be as I've had, you know, people going off and uh, to the toilet and wanting to throw up. Yeah, or people being so anxious and nervous that they they can't cope, that they, they withdraw themselves from assessment um, or they're just unable to perform at their natural best deliver what they know because of these other 
things that get in the way, okay? Thoughts that are going on in the head, expectations, promises made, and so on. And we're going to cover a bit of that in this podcast. So it's probably going to be a long one. Um, I'll try and break it down into sections so that you can dip in and out of sections a little bit easier. Um, But let's also manage some expectations from the off here. I've run, I think it was earlier this year and late last year, um, four-week interactive online training courses that covered how to increase composure and calm assessment. Okay, eight, nine, ten plus hours of of content delivered over that four week period. So we're not going to be having an eight to ten hour podcast here. So my aim with this, of course, I'm not going to cover every single thing that could cause you to be nervous or anxious or overwhelmed. I'm not going to be able to deal with every single aspect of um, increasing composure at assessment. I want to give you a few things to think about, stimulate some thought. And if there's something specific, you want more information, coaching advice on, then get in touch. Okay. Um, But yeah, it's just a little caveat here. We're not going to cover everything. All right. But hopefully what we do cover will give you a good start to be able to stack things in your favor and um, control what is in your control okay and that's one of the key key elements here okay the idea of composure is being in control a lot of the time when we feel stressed is when we are trying to control things that are not in our control and we are not controlling the things that are in our control I will say that again. Write it down would be my recommendation. A common cause of stress is when we try to control things that are not in our control. Or we worry about things that are not in our control. Or we don't control the things that are. And let's look at an assessment situation. We are worried about what the assessor is going to think. What the assessor thinks isn't directly inside your control. It's inside your influence by you delivering a strong performance at assessment. And again, we'll kind of cover that and go into that, excuse me, a bit more later. But if you, the the first element to take away here, and again, I'd strongly say we write this down, is if you want to be more composed, if you want to stay calmer, be more confident in your assessment, get very clear on what is in your control and control those things. How comfortable or uncomfortable they are or aren't. Don't try and shortcut them, okay? Your logbook is in your control, yeah? The amount of work you put in to a greater or lesser extent, is inside your control. Okay. The things that aren't inside your control, again, get very clear on what they are. Remind yourselves of what they are. And then when you find yourself 
getting caught up in thoughts about those things. Oh, I wonder what the assessor's thinking. Hold on. None of my business, per se. Yeah. He'll tell me what he's thinking or she'll, she'll tell me what she is thinking at the appropriate time. My job is to deliver the knowledge and share the knowledge of, of what I, you know, um, of what's uh, congruent with what's being asked of me. If I d- I'm not sure on what's being asked of me, or if I'm not sure of what the assessor wants, then what's in my control? Ask them. Don't assume, second guess, you ask, you gain clarification. Okay? They'll understand and accept that you'll be nervous and anxious and they'll make allowances for that. But if you're unsure of something, don't just go, well, I think they want this. If in doubt, ask the question. Clarity is is key in remaining calm and being in control. You need to know what is being asked of you. So having the confidence to go, you know what, if I'm not sure, then I'm going to ask the question. Okay? that's a first little bit here okay so a little bit of background on myself um i'm a mountaineering and climbing instructor or mia old school mia mountaineering climbing instructor um that's the highest qualification i have obviously to get to that um i've had a period of, of near two decades in the outdoor industry um and like a whole bunch of you, I imagine, uh, that requires going through a whole bunch of assessments. Some of those went really well, some of those did not. Um, You know, my MIA, MCI as is now, um, didn't go that great because I properly got in my own way. And there's a whole host of uh, lessons I could share and some of the things I'll share with you today um, are based off those experiences and those lessons plus what I've learned since. In addition to that, I've also been a course director and a trainer of staff, so I've run many site-specific and um, NGB training and assessment courses. And I've seen many times people maybe make a minor mistake Something that I might go, oh, I'll give them a bit of feedback on that. Let's see how the rest of this assessment goes. Okay. But they've not been able to let go from that mistake. They've not been able to recover from that, from what would probably just be a little bit of a, be mindful of that, you know, type comment. And because they've not been able to let go of it, they've basically got in their own way. They've been focused on the mistake that, they ha- and to the, the extent that they haven't been able to learn from it quickly, recover from it, and then move on. And it's basically led them to make more mistakes and then defer that section. You know? Now, some people, after they kind of get to that and we can have a little chat and, you know, uh, I've been able to, you know, recalibrate, if you like, um, put people's mind at ease uh, as an assessor. We want people to pass. It breaks a heart. We're like screaming in our heads, you know, check the carabiner, check the carabiner, you know, turn the map the other way or, you know, whatever it happens to be, you know, turn around, turn around, you've got your back to it, whatever. 
you know, we're screaming this in our head. We don't want to fail or defer people. You know, we just want people to have a great assessment process. We want people to have a, a, a good um, a good experience, you know, and come out the other side with a qualification, which means they can go off and continue to do what they want to do. Um, but I've also seen um, people then go from deferral on one element. So, you know, they would have passed 80% of their assessment. They've got to come back and do one element. Okay. 80% sounds like pretty good, <laughs> you know, um, amount of return on the investment of effort. And you just got to come back and do 20% straightforward. I've also seen people take that, you know, that they kind of know in their heads, you don't tell people necessarily, but they'll, they'll know in their heads that they've deferred that one element, maybe because we've had to step in or maybe I've had to step in and and take over a rope or, you know, stop somebody from doing something potentially dangerous that in that one particular aspect means that that area of the syllabus, you know, they're not up to standard. But be not able to recover from that and then fail the whole thing. You know, now you could argue, well, they've maybe they've not done enough practice or they've not done enough this. And, and there is potentially an element of that. But what I've also seen is the whole assessment pressure thing. Where people are very good technically, where people that I've even know as instructors are very good as instructors. But as soon as you put them in an assessment situation, the meaning that they attach to that situation, the expectations they have of themselves, the expectations they assume other people have of them get in the way. And it means that they can't perform. And it's heartbreaking as an assessor. Okay, your assessor's a human. Um, so that's kind of my experience. Like I say, I had a pretty um, tough time. I passed all of my assessments up to the one that I worked the most for and I cared the most about. Um, and I deferred that one. And I deferred it because... I got on my own way. You could argue if I'd have done more practice, done more experience, I'd have a greater capacity, a greater margin of error. You could argue that. But I also know that my skill set was on point. That outside of the assessment, outside of the assessment bubble, if you like, that kind of goldfish bowl of assessment, that I'd handled difficult situations emergency situations really well but inside that assessment bubble in that moment I placed so many expectations on myself and I ultimately unthreaded you know my own assessment by me you know applying opinion on my own performance as to whether it was good or good enough even though I didn't know because I don't know the assessment criteria like the assessors do. I was doing the job of the assessor rather than doing the job of the candidate and doing what I should know I should do. The assessor asked me to do something. Yeah, make sure I know what I need to do and just go and deliver it to the best of my ability. Done. Okay, thanks. Forget about it. And we're going to come on to that a little bit more. So that's my experience. Um, 
And my aim is with these little things and some of the courses that I've done is that people don't, I, I'd like to share these experiences and share this knowledge that I got during that and since. So since then, I've been doing a lot of study on why we do what we do. It started off as why mistakes happen. Then it started off as to how, why we make the decisions that we make, what could influence our decisions. And it's progressed on to, well, how can we be the most effective? Okay, how can we be at our personal best at any given time? Whether that's at work, at home, in difficult, challenging situations, on assessments, in tricky one-to-one meetings, in the office, on the mountain, just how can we be um, our most effective? What can influence that in a positive way? What can influence that in a negative way? And what can we do about it? What's inside our control? It involves a little bit of neuroscience, a little bit of psychology, behavioral stuff. Um, And so I'm bringing all of these elements together and I'll be sharing some bits and bobs like that in this podcast with you. So we're going to get into this again. I'm, like I say, I'm going to try and break it down into some sections um, so that you can more easily find a section that, that maybe is more relevant to you. And as I said before, if you have any questions, this isn't going to be like fully comprehensive and cover every single thing that it could be. Otherwise, we'd be here forever. Um, but if you have any other questions, then get in touch. JP at... Uh, pro-edge-project.co.uk find me on Facebook at ProEdgeProject message me through there or just get in touch and send me a text 07889-888-915 okay if you found this useful ping me a text and let me know if there's something specific you want to know about or you want something expanded about or you have a, a specific situation you'd like some help with then also um get in touch you know an initial chat's not going to cost you anything but if you wanted some long-term coaching and some long-term assistance then um then we can talk about that and we can we can cover that um as and when appropriate but let's get into this um and let's get into uh our strategies approaches and ideas so let's get into the first one Okay, let's go. Staying in your lane, the perils of the comparison game. So a common theme throughout this, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today um, is how we can prepare in advance of our assessment and also how we can... um, change or manage our um, thoughts, our behaviour and so on during assessment. But all of that will come from doing some prior planning. And I'm not just talking about, you know, dialing your, your paddling skills or your navigation or your rope work or your group management stuff. Not those hard skills. I'm talking about personal effectiveness Skills And the great thing with working on these personal effectiveness skills, they're going to pay dividends when you're in work. Okay, they're going to also help your effectiveness. 
Okay, personal effectiveness when applied in the workplace is professionalism. So it's a win-win. So let's look at this, staying in your lane. Now, we're going to talk comparison. Lots of times I've done this and I've spoken to other people that have done this as well, is comparison is a potentially dangerous game to play. As far as I'm concerned, um, comparison only has really one benefit. It's way before assessment. So let's talk, keep it um, on topic in terms of assessment. It's before assessment. If you see somebody, if you see a fellow instructor, a fellow colleague at work, and there's somebody you admire, you go, oh, look at that. Yeah, well, they're going for assessment. Oh, they've got a strong logbook. Their logbook is stronger than mine. Their group management's really good. Their rope work is really slick. Their this is... If, if you can compare yourself to them and you either see that uh, they are at a higher standard to you, more experience, and you can use that to drive you forward. You can't be them, but if you can look at what they have and you can break it down and, and get really specific, what is it about them that, that you admire? Okay, what is it about their experience? What is it about their logbook that you think, oh, that's really good? You figure that out, then the next question is, okay, how can I do similar? Okay, you can't be them, but how can you do similar? This is about the only time I think comparison is useful. Okay, is if you see somebody and you go, God, that's the kind of, in my mind, that's the picture of how I want to be as an instructor. Okay, how can I do that with my background, my experience? Um you know, the, the time and money and effort that I've got. How can I create something similar? You can't be them. They have their own background, their own perceptions, their own financial and time, um, you know, situation um, that's going to be different to yours. Okay, again, going back to what have I got? What is in my control that means I can move things forward? There is no point going, oh man, I wish I had as many days logged as they have. Well, then go and get more days. Oh, but I haven't got much time. Then delay your assessment. You know what I mean? All too often I hear a lot of, and I'll be quite honest, whiny excuses. Oh, but like the climbing wall's a really long way away. Uh, you live in London. There are dozens of climbing walls just in a, a tube right away. Or, oh, I live a long way from the mountains. What do you expect? when you signed up to do your mountain leader. You know? It's, nobody said it was gonna be easy, but there are lots of ways that you can stack things in your favor, make it easier, make connections, have conversations. You have to put effort in. You know, it's not like you rock up at training, then you will just get given, you know, the easiest way to go and log all this experience and just by rocking up to assessment do you pass you have to be at the right standard you have to go out and get the right kind of experience 
um, that's going to stack things in your favor. If you're just looking for shortcuts, hacks, easy ways round, uh, invariably that's not going to help you. Okay? So that's compassion and how compassion can benefit you in my mind. Okay? But all too often I've had, I've had a conversation uh, back along where somebody went for their winter ML assessment and they went, oh man, I walked in the room and there was this mountain rescue guy and there was this guy who's been this and he's got all of this experience and there's this other guy and he had all these other mountain days. And immediately as you're all, you know, with a bunch of, as he was, you know, a bunch of males in an environment, you know, the old uh, top dogness is going to come out a little bit. Um, alpha male business. And, you know, in this situation, it seemed to be logbook comparison that was um, coming to the front. And he felt kind of like, oh, my God, you know, I'm not as good as these guys because they've got this, that and everything else. But what he was focusing on is what they had and the gap between what he had and they had, thinking that he should be like them. But he had more than enough prerequisite days and experience to go on assessment. That's all. Your job, again, this is the, another, the only other time when you when comparison is useful, is when you compare your skills and your experience against the requirements of the syllabus. Not what matey boy had or so-and-so had or, or matey boy passed and he only just had enough or matey boy passed and he had 10 times more. Irrelevant. You'll know what you need and it's a combination of whether you feel ready or not or you get yourself as close as you can, you know, but... Every single qualification will have a syllabus. It will have very clear um, information regarding what is required of those going for assessment. Okay? If you have doubts, then ask an assessor or somebody who runs training courses. Don't ask your mate. Okay? Because you're likely to get, unless you're somebody who runs assessment courses, but ask somebody who is objective. Ask somebody who, you know, maybe who you are thinking of going and running an assessment with and say, do you mind having a look at your, my logbook? If you have to pay them 20 quid to do so, which I doubt whether you will, but if you had to pay them 20 quid to do so, then that's 20 quid well spent. If they give you some valuable feedback on your logbook and your experience and the way you go from there. Yeah. Or you arrange a refresher day, maybe with somebody that you would then think about going and doing an assessment with and you actually then get to get some feedback on how your skills and experience compare against the syllabus, not against anybody else. Comparing yourself against somebody else, what's the benefit of that? Unless it's pre-assessment and you use it to drive you forward. Hopefully that makes sense. But this is about staying in your lane, staying in control. Somebody else's experience is not in your control and is none of your business. Okay, your experience, your skill level is what's important. If you've 
lied or exaggerated and you've only just got enough days to get through, that's probably why you're feeling really particularly, uh, you know, unconfident. If you put the days in and you've got enough days, more than enough, the minimum number is the minimum number, don't just get the minimum, yeah? Get the minimum plus a good amount, okay? But staying in your lane in terms of logbook and experience is very much compare yourself against the syllabus, but be very mindful about comparing yourself to anybody else on assessment. What they did, the amount of time, money, effort, resources, whatever they had, does not apply or is irrelevant to you. You've got to stay focused on what you are doing. And this leads us nicely on to when we're in assessment. Okay? Somebody else is having a bad time assessment. Somebody else is having an argument with an assessor. Believe me, it happens more often than you think. Yep. Again, it's keeping this, this, this kind of little phrase in your mind, stay in your own lane. Yeah, stay in your own lane. Much like you're driving down a motorway, you don't want to be weaving, you know, weaving into other people's lanes. You know, you don't want to be weaving into oncoming traffic. You've got to be staying in your lane. What is being asked of you? Stay focused on that. Somebody else is having a bad time. Yeah, if you feel that you've got enough capacity and you want to, you know, give them a hand on the shoulder, you know, and help them out, obviously you're not going to show them how to navigate or tie the knot or rig the thing. But, you know, uh, uh, reassurance and, and such like, maybe you want to do that. that. That's different. But getting sucked into somebody else's arguments, getting sucked into other people's opinions. The other thing that happens is when you'll get people... Uh, spouting off mouthing off oh this assessor's that or i've heard that this assessor says this or i've heard this or i've heard that again you're just getting into gossip it's never going to help i've heard that so and so is a real ball breaker okay where did you hear that from a mate who probably didn't do the required amount of work went on assessment and the guy pulled him up but instead of taking ownership and responsibility, decided to label the assessor as a ball breaker. Right. So if you think that the assessor is a ball breaker, how's, how's that going to help as you go into your assessment? It's not. All right. Assessors are human, right? They're very professional. They'll have good days. They'll have bad days. All right. Again, staying in your lane means not listening to any of this kind of BS gossiping, you know, almost like fear-mongering. People are like to make up mistakes or make up reasons or excuses for failing beforehand. Oh yeah, I've heard this is like really hard and this is that and this is the other and this is the other. Like, so if they do defer or fail, then they can just go, yes, yeah, I told you it was really hard or that they have really tough standards and it's really hard to pass with these people. Again, how does that help you you're getting sucked into stuff that you can't control and you're getting out of your lane again i could i could do an hour just on staying in your lane and looking at various things yourself and you might be going oh yeah but what if the, the, the assessor really is a bit of a nightmare 
What if the assessor is really rude? What if the assessor is really this? Okay. Well, one, which will lead on to our next section in a minute. What's your preferred response in that situation? I'll guarantee it's not having an argument with them. Okay. It might be walking away. It might be writing down your concerns. It might be, you know, doing something in, in some degree of formality in an email or in a letter. Yeah. Or raising your concerns in a calm and composed way with the person or at the appropriate time. But every national governing body will have a um, process for disputes. And so you follow that. But again, all too often people, do they follow that? No. They'll just wander off and moan and bitch and moan and bitch. And you go, so you think you were treated unfairly at assessment, yet... You haven't raised it with the assessor and you haven't raised it with the national governing body. Right. How is that any use? It's not. Again, you're veering off. You're not controlling the things that are in your control. Okay? And doing some of this ahead of the game, okay, reminding yourself, writing things down, which we'll come to in a minute, Going, right, how can I stay in my lane? How can I stop listening to other people's opinions as to whether this assessment is this or this assessment is that? Okay? And staying in your lane. In the middle of assessment, not getting sucked into other people's issues. Yeah? Being focused on what you are doing. So that's my kind of little tip number one. Okay? Now, again, like many of these things, some of these will be relevant for you at certain times, some won't. So, you know, um, if you want something more specialist, more personalised, then get in touch. Okay, let's get on to the next section. Okay, next section. Begin with the end in mind. Okay. Stephen Covey's great book, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talks about this. Um, so, how do you want to be at assessment? Now, now many people will go into assessment and go, right, I want to go and pass. Okay technically how much of that whether you pass or not is that specifically in your control you don't say whether you pass or not your assessor does and there's a subtle but very important distinction here okay so At assessment, the end game, yeah, is to pass, but technically that's not so much in your control. Um, so what is inside your control is you delivering a really strong performance. You being able to rock up, be composed, be confident, be calm, and deliver the knowledge that you have to the best of your ability based off the experience and the perceptions that you have at that given time. 
Whether that's good enough to pass or not, that's the job of the assessors, not yours. Which again goes back to our previous section, which is staying in your lane. Your job is to rock up and deliver a strong performance, the best performance you absolutely can, and to show what you know. It is your assessor's job to tell you whether that's good enough or not and give you some feedback about um, your performance. So begin with the end of the mind. How do you want to be at assessment? And there's one very important thing here, which is get specific. Oh, I want to be good enough to pass. Mm, it's kind of vague. All right. So let's get into this a little bit more. Okay. So for me, when I ask this question, I'll ask this when I go into a particular job or an event or some such, I will ask myself, how do I want to be in this meeting? How do I want to be um, on this rock climb? How do I want to perform? Okay. And it's the outcome will potentially therefore come a result of my actions and behavior. But if I am purely and only focused on the outcome, then I'm potentially going to lose my way and, and not perform or act in a way that is conducive to getting to that outcome. Does that make sense? You know, and I might come on to this a little bit later, but, you know, going in with a failure is not an option. Um, yeah, it is. Okay. You could be the most positive thinking person in the world. But if your skills and standards are not up to scratch, then you will defer or you will fail. Okay. So failure is an option. So this isn't about not thinking positively it's about appropriate positive thinking all right so how do you want to be at assessment what do you want to focus on okay so how do i want to be at assessment okay so if it was me so how do i want to be at assessment okay i want to um make sure i listen carefully to what the assessor asks of me if i have any questions i want to make sure that i ask and i gain clarification of it i want to make sure that if i'm beginning to feel rushed because things are late that i take my time or i ask for more time it's my assessment and this comes back to feeling in control sometimes if we feel rushed we don't feel in control if we don't feel in control it's a major source of Stress, feeling in control makes us feel good, right? Um, and like I said, being effective is about being in control of the things that we can control. I, how do I want to be at assessment? I want to stay in my lane. I want to make sure that I am very mindful of gossip or and of other people's nervousness and uh, best willed fear mongering you know, if need be, where they're just trying to cheer themselves up. They're trying to, you know, create 
potential reasons for poor performance before they've even delivered their performance, that's fine, they can do that. But I'm not going to get sucked into that. I don't want to get sucked into that. And being very clear and specific about how you do or don't want to be will put you in a much better position to act and behave in that way. If you are not clear on how you want to respond to a certain situation, okay, then you're going to be leaving it to chance. Or more likely, you're going to be leaving it to the default part of your mind, you know, the, the, the amygdala part of the mind or the chimp part of the mind. If you're a follower of uh, the stuff that we do and, and Professor Steve Peters and the, the chimp paradox, if you don't work out your human responses, how you would like to humanly act in a given situation, then you're far more likely that the chimp's going to take over. Okay, because the chimp's going to feel threatened when you're on assessment because there is fear of failure, fear of embarrassment. And the chimp doesn't want you to feel embarrassed. The default part of our mind doesn't want us to feel embarrassed. So getting clear, getting writing down, writing down, doing it, not being in your head, writing down. How do you want to be at assessment? You can go, well, but JP, I don't know what's going to turn up. What if something comes left field that I'm not expecting? Okay. Then you ask this, if something unexpected turns up, how do I want to respond? And you try to be as specific as you can with the information that you might have. Now, there's a lot of information out there about how assessments run and so on. You know, the, 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 the structure of them and, and what you be, might, might be asked to do. So the likelihood of something coming left field is quite remote. But if something does happen left field, a bit unexpected, how do you want to be? Well, I'd want to maybe take a few breaths, gain clarification, look at what I do have, be clear on what's in my control, um, vocalise my options so that the assessor knows what's going on inside my head and then take action. So granted, I don't know the situation, but that is how I might want to be in a situation that's maybe unexpected. You get my point. But there will be certain things, certainly aspects of the syllabus or the assessment where you don't feel as sure, you feel, don't feel as confident. All too often, we like to work on our strengths because they make us feel good. Okay? But going into an assessment thinking, God, don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to do the other. Oh, God, please don't ask me. You know that they're going to ask you it. So if they do ask you it, how do you want to be? If you know it's a weakness and it's in your control to remove that weakness and yet you don't remove that weakness, well, is it any wonder it's causing you some stress? Okay? Um... It's an analogy I use. You could have a, a, a massive castle, okay? And you could have tons of the best archers, you know, a really wide moat, you know, a big drawbridge, you know, uber port cutlass thing, um, and all of that. They're really high walls, but if you leave the back door open, the rest is for nothing. 
So looking at what your weaknesses are in the syllabus and eliminating them will massively increase your composure. Because again, you'll go into your um, assessment confident that what was a weakness is now okay. Yeah, rather than not rather than going into that assessment going, oh, just don't ask me about this, don't ask me about that, don't ask me about the other. And the reason we don't do it is because it's uh, uncomfortable, it's usually inconvenient, and it doesn't make us feel good. Well, you know, again, if you've listened to any of this stuff, be bothered is, is, is kind of a key phrase to, to a lot of what we do. And, um, yeah, trying to shortcut and hack it or hope that they don't ask you to do it, yeah, not the greatest strategy for increasing composure, is it? Um, you know, it's head in the sand type effect. So asking yourself, let's go back to this, asking yourself, how do you want to be at assessment? Okay. Focusing on delivering a strong performance to show off all of your knowledge. That's how you want to be, right? You want to go and deliver a strong performance. The, the, the best performance that you can give at that time. But then it goes, right, let's, let's, let's dial down another level and go, okay, okay, what does a strong performance look like to you? For you to be happy walking away at the end of that assessment, regardless of the result. Yeah, I'll only be happy with a, with a pass. Okay. But what if your skills aren't up to scratch? If the skills you deliver at assessment are the best you could deliver, nobody can ask any more of you. If they happen then to be good enough for a pass, great. If they're not, great, because the assessor will tell you what else you need to do just to top up. Okay? But... For me, if I can go into an assessment and know that I've delivered the best that I can, I did not get in my own way. I stayed composed. I didn't get sucked into anybody else's business, you know, and I have received a fair assessment on where I'm at. I did not let myself down. I, I don't do these things where and I've, I've done this and I've heard so many people say this. God, I've never made that mistake before. You know, or I've done this loads of times, but I've never got it wrong like this. Some people might go, well, they just need to practice more. Maybe. My argument is they need to get out of their own way. Okay, because I know that for my um, MCI, MIA as it was then, after I deferred, I think I did a couple days during consolidation and I went back and I passed. The massive difference was not, because it was not a skill set issue that I had. It was a mindset issue. I was getting in my own way. I had built up too many expectations. I had yeah, built up the thing. I had built up all of these different things. I was passing judgment and assessing myself rather than letting the assessor do it. I had set expectations of what I expected of myself rather than focusing on just 
taking each thing as it come, deliver that tiny section to the best of my ability, then forget about it. Next thing, take it, deliver it, forget about it, and then see what happens after that. Um, so yeah, what does a strong performance look like to you? And lastly, again, we could go on for ages for this, but lastly, how do you want to be, how do you want to respond, not react, if something doesn't go well? Okay, because the ego, the chimp is going to, you know, get kind of reared up if you get some feedback you don't want. Okay. So how do you want to be? Do you want to snap? Do you want to have an argument with the assessor? Do you want to have an argument with a fellow candidate? Do you want to panic? Or would you like to take the advice, take the lesson, breathe in for a moment, take a second, take the lessons, and then move on? What could you say to yourself? A little mantra, something's not gone right, What's the lesson? Take the lesson. Move on. You can't go back. Okay. All you can do if something doesn't go well is you take the lesson. Make sure you don't repeat it, which is why it's heartbreaking when I've had this so many times when I've maybe pointed out an undone screw gate or I've pointed out something. Now, if I point it out once, I might put a one off down to um, a bit of assessment nerves. Okay. But if I point it out once, I expect that person to be a goddamn screwgate checking ninja from there on in. Because then I'm reassured, you know what? Because you're in such a heightened state during assessment, the lessons that you learn during assessment, and you will learn many, your assessment will probably be one of the best training courses you will ever do. You will be at such a heightened level of awareness and attention that when you do get something picked up or you do get something shared, um, you will remember it that much more. Okay, because emotions will be running high and any uh, knowledge or experience linked with strong emotions um, is, is far more likely to enter long-term memory. Okay, so that's why during assessment, it's going to be one of the best training courses you ever do. A small mistake you make at assessment, you will unlikely ever forget. But the key thing is, is how you take that experience, the meanings you apply to it. You can either apply a meaning, which is, I will take the lesson, I will make sure I don't repeat it, and away you go. For me, it's heartbreaking when you point out, say, an undone screw gate just once early on in the assessment when you can tell people are nervous. And yet you have to point out two, three, four times. Sometimes then it's less about nerves. It's about a lack of uh, drills, a lack of skills, or they have been unable to take that lesson through extreme nerves and anxiety. You know, they've got tunnel vision, they can't see what's going on. Again, that could be just through a lack of experience or it could just be, um, you know, an inability to cope well under pressure. You know, assessment pressure, which in itself can be quite difficult. 
Um, but like I say, it's also reassuring when you point out something, let's say the undone screw gate or what have you, um, and then you see them being a screw gate checking ninja. Because then you just go, you know what? I don't think they're ever going to leave a screw gate undone ever again. They've taken the lesson, they've applied it, and they've progressed as a result win okay um so yeah how do you want to be how do you respond if something doesn't go well what does a strong performance look like to you how do you want to be and again i'd be very careful about going i want to go in and i want to smash it okay what does smashing it look like I want to go in and I can pass. Failure is not an option. No, I tell you what, failure is an option. <laughs> so is deferral. And and to a degree, you're not the one who says whether you pass or fail. Okay, so don't get sucked into thinking what is this going to be good enough to pass? Is that going to be good enough to fail? Or what's the assessor thinking? What again? You're getting sucked into somebody else's lane. Okay, how do you want to be? Stay in your lane. Get given an instruction, get given a thing to do, focus on doing it to the best of your ability, taking a breath, not rushing it. What are your preferences or tendencies? Do you tend to rush things? Yeah. What can you do? Do you tend to, you know, uh, suffer from, you know, tightness of stomach and and shortness of breath and, and get really kind of tight and anxious? Okay, what can you do? How do you want to be? Would you like to be calm? Okay, what does a calm person look like? What's their breathing like? It's slow and it's steady and it's deep. Short, quick breaths. Is the breathing pattern of anxious people? Longer, deeper, slower breaths is the breathing pattern of a calm person, someone who's composed. So by adopting uh, the body posture, the breathing, the facial expressions of somebody who is calm and composed, you will be more calm and composed. How do you want to be assessment? I want to breathe steady. And it's, yes, it's a lot to remember, but if you write this down more often and you practice this, you know, in any pre-assessment kind of preparation, you practice breathing, meditation, breathing exercises, relaxation exercises. All of these things will help you be more composed, help you be how you want to be. But the key thing is, and for this little section, is get clear and specific on how you want to be during your assessment. And it will go massively, help massively um, towards you achieving that. If you're not clear, you're just going to be leaving it very much to chance. Okay, on to the next section. Right, on to the next section. Uh, We're going to call this failure set and the samurai mindset. So, as I mentioned before, Comments like, or attitudes or approaches like, failure is not an option. 
um, you know, I'm going to pass. It's just, it's just how it is. I'm just going to, I've got to smash this, you know. Um, failure is an option. Um, whilst, yes, you passing is in your control, equally it's, it's not your decision. So maybe let's look at it that way. Technically it is in your control, but it's not your decision. Um, you know, you listening carefully and just showing what you know. Um, and if things don't go well, you take the lesson, do you move on? That is in your control, as we've mentioned before. <clears throat> so let's have a look at this concept of failure setting and the samurai mindset. And one thing I want to set straight or be clear on from the off is that this is not a negative way to think. It's quite the opposite. It's a, another form of appropriate, positive thinking. Okay? So the samurai mindset, the samurai before going into battle or into a duel, um, it is said that the kind of Bushido, the Budo way, would be they would be prepared to die. They would be prepared to fail. Now the thing to bear in mind here, being prepared or accepting that death or failure was a potential outcome and being comfortable with that is very different to wanting that. They did not want to die or to fail but they were prepared and they fully accepted they fully owned the fact that that is a um possible pretty possible um outcome in that situation but and this is the the, the key thing this is the key thing by being prepared by being uh, happy for or accepting that consequence, they were no longer, or they no longer had their minds taken up by that consequence. Their minds were not preoccupied with death or trying to avoid death. They were then clear and free to focus on the task in hand, their swordsmanship, their, their whatever. Does that make sense? Let's look at rock climbing. If you have a fear of falling, if you have not prepared yourself for the fall by taking loads of fall practice, by doing whatever mental preparation you have, your mind will be taking up with the fear of falling, which will more likely cause you to fall. What you focus on grows as you think, so you shall become, said the Buddha. Okay, so what we're going to look at here is failure setting. Now, we're not saying we're going into assessment wanting or 
expecting to fail, but just accepting that it's a possibility and owning that consequence. To the point, and the more we do this, to the point where you will then no longer be worried about failing or deferring because you've already processed it ahead of time, which will ergo mean that you'll be not so caught up about it during your assessment or during the run-up to your assessment, which means you'll be less likely to fail. I'm not going to say it's an impossibility, that it removes it, but you'll be less likely because you've processed it beforehand. And there'll be a reason why you won't do this, because it's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient and doesn't feel very nice. But if you think about it, it is an appropriate an effective form of positive thinking. Okay, so here's, here's, let's, let's go into this a little bit more. Um, so why would deferring be good or useful? Okay, I would recommend writing down at least three reasons why deferring would be good or useful. So by deferring, it means you've got most of the things right on the syllabus, but there's maybe one or two aspects or, or elements that weren't quite up to scratch okay and you've got to come back and do those again why is that good why is that useful well for a start one you know exactly where you are now okay you've passed the majority of the assessment if you had failed the majority of the assessment you would have failed the assessment okay so you've passed most of the assessment so that's good you now know that you are at or above standard for the majority of things and you know exactly, exactly what needs to be done in order just to finish it off. Now, yeah, you could look at it and go, oh, yeah, but it's going to cost more money. and Oh, yeah, it's going to cost this. And oh, it's going to take more time. And you go, well, kind of come on to that on this next section, which is called it is what it is. OK, but why is you know, we can all think of lots of reasons why deferring is not good. But if it's a potential outcome, if you're not prepared for it, it's going to take up your mind during and in the run up to it. OK, so why is deferring good? Why would it be useful? Write down three factual, logical, clear reasons why deferring would be good. OK. Why would failing be useful? Now, I guarantee you that this one will be more difficult to maybe think about. But why would failing be useful? Three factual, logical reasons as to why failing would be useful. You write them down. You do not do this in your head. You write it down. You go on assessment to find out whether you're good enough or not, to find out where you are, to have an assessment of your skills, knowledge and experience as it relates to the requirements of a given syllabus. You've gone on assessment, you now have got feedback and it's just said that you are below par or you have not met the required uh, level or elements on 
you know, the majority of the syllabus in these areas, these areas, these areas. This is what you go away and work with. So where you will get a clear plan of action to move forward. You'll basically get given where you are and where you what you need to do to get to where you need to be. You will at no other time be any clearer on how to get to us on, on how to pass your assessment than when you've just failed assessment. If that makes sense. OK. So when you go back for your next assessment, you'll know what the assessment process is like, you know what the assessor is like, the way they work, the, the way they ask questions, the way it's structured. You'll know exactly where you were OK and what was good and what was working for you and what didn't work for you and what you need to work on and away you go from there. There are many reasons why failing would be useful. Or why you can kind of go, you know what, failing is what it is. So be it. So that therefore you don't get hung up on it or as hung up on it. The reason why many people aren't composed or they're anxious at assessment is because they're worried about the outcome, which means they get distracted from the process. Now some people aren't ready, they don't have the skill set, they don't have the required amount of hours or they fudged it or they, they get deferred because they haven't brought their first aid certificate, the most common deferral, when it's in your control. Crazy, yeah? Um, but failure setting is not negative thinking. You're not going in expecting or wanting or looking to fail, but it's the samurai mindset. You're prepared for all outcomes. You want to win. You want to survive, granted. You want to pass. But you're going to be focused on the process required of you and you have done the work ahead of time to process the outcomes, all outcomes, pass, defer, fail. Trust me, doing so will make your assessment a lot easier. If you are, you know, um, already concerned about, you know, nerves and, and anxiety or overwhelm getting in the way. And you can use a similar sort of process um, inside your, when you're rock climbing. You know, if rock climbing is your thing or such like, so you can use it in other things as well. You can kind of go, hold on, how bad is failure? What's going to happen if I do fail? Um, so yeah, failure set. Failure is an option. Process it. Not necessarily be happy with it, but just accept and own it as a consequence and it will not play on your mind as much but you have to like any of these things okay you have to do some work listening to one podcast is not gonna provide you with a ton of composure you need to write down how you're going to stay in your lane you need to write down how you want to be you need to you know be proactive in managing this and working on this rather than just um you know hoping that listening to one podcast is going to suddenly provide you with a ton of composure Okay.
So, on to the next section. Okay, next section, next topic. Um, if you're still with me, excellent. Uh, well done. So many people will look at this and not listen. So many people will kind of listen to a couple of things and then go, oh, yeah, whatever, that seems like a lot of effort and not do anything. The fact that you're this far tells me that you're someone who's clearly proactive in wanting to make sure that they're putting themselves in the best position possible at assessment. The next step is to apply some of this. Do something off the back of this. Yeah, write something down. Take it and make it specific for you. Okay, so this next little strategy approach, if you like, is something that I uh, use a lot uh, for regaining focus, for regaining a bit of composure, a bit of clarity, for keeping myself in my lane. Um, and it's kind of called, it is what it is. And it's something that I'll say to myself quite often. It's like, it might be, it is what it is. You are where you are. You've got what you've got. And what we're trying to do here is avoid or get out of the, the kind of victim mindset or the wishing, hoping mindset. Oh, I wish I'd done this. Oh, I wish, I hope they don't do that. Pointless. Okay, wishing or hoping for something to be better or different before or during assessment or after assessment. Oh man, I should have done the other. I should have done this. I, if I'd have done that, then I wouldn't have failed. You either take the lesson and then you move on, right? It is what it is. You are where you are. You've got what you've got, okay? You just do now the best you can. How you respond to it is in your control, okay? As you walk into assessment, the amount of preparation, knowledge and experience that you have and that you've gained is what you have. Wishing you'd done more pointless you know regretting not doing more days pointless okay if you're thinking that a week before your assessment delay it that's in your control if it costs you a bit of money it costs you a bit of money or you just go for assessment and then just accept that you are where you are you have what you have and then you do the best with what you have. That is all you can do. If it's good enough, great. If not, so be it. See the previous section on failure setting. Okay? It is your job to deliver what you know. It is your assessor's job to tell you whether it hits the box, uh, ticks the box or not. Okay? So this one's probably going to be a bit you know, short and simple, but reminding yourself, having it written down and being able to practice, you know, when something comes a bit left field, you know, let's say you're in the middle of a, a navigation thing and let's say your map blows away or you're lost. Realistically, you find yourself lost. You've made an error and you've gone off course. Beating yourself up, pointless. Regretting what you've just done, the mistake you've made, pointless. You are where you are, you have what you have. You can learn from it. It is 
what it is. So what are you going to do about it now? Which comes back to begin with the end of mind. In a situation like that, how would you want to respond? It's about not going into future thinking. Oh man, I think I've deferred. I'm going to get deferred. I'm going to get failed. Blah, 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 blah. Hold on. How is that helpful? Yeah. Thinking to at the end of your assessment. Well, that's in the future. And, and who knows? There's a whole bunch more stuff that's got to happen first. Everyone makes mistakes. It's how you deal with it that sets you aside. Okay. Making a navigational error is one thing. Beating yourself up, getting stuck into either future catastrophic fear type thinking or going into past based thinking where you're regretting what you've done, wishing something was different or hoping you were somewhere and in a different situation, all pointless. But by going, staying focused on going, okay, that is what it is. Okay, we've made a mistake. So be it. Mistakes happen. Mistakes happen to everybody. What am I going to do about it? What have I got? Where am I? So let's use the, 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 the navigational where. Okay, where am I? Let's relocate. What have I got that I can use to relocate? Okay, let's go for that. Yep. And I use like a crime scene investigation process for relocation or navigation, looking for as many pieces of evidence to back up the case for my location. Aspect of slope, distance from a known point. Yeah. Bearing onto something. Time from this, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Features. So don't just, I'm at this track junction, so surely I must be here. But it's about... You are where you are. If you make a mistake, yeah, it is what it is. Stay focused on the present, on delivering a strong performance from there on in. Okay? You are where you are. You have what you have. Do the best you can with what you've got. It is what it is. And this is about staying out of future-based fear thinking and catastrophizing or going into past-based thinking, as I've said, and staying, being able to return to the right now and deal with the right now. Okay? Not your place to say whether you've passed or failed. It's your place to return to the task in hand and deal with whatever you have got with the best that you can. Okay? So relatively short, snappy one, but it's very useful. And like I say, I use it a lot to be able to regain, you know, if the kids are off ill, if I've got a trip planned and it had to be cancelled, I can either be peed off at it, annoyed, upset. None of these things help me. What I do is I use, it is what it is, as a pattern break to break that kind of negative train of thought. Here's what it is. Okay, what can we do? How can we make the best of this situation? What have I got? How can I use it? I am where I am. I've got what I've got. Hopefully that's useful. Okay.
Okay, next section. In this section, we're going to talk about um, a concept that I got from a book by Ant Middleton um, called The Fear Bubble. And Ant Middleton's ex-para, ex-marine, SBS, Special Forces, um, went on to work on SAS, Who Dares Wins, Everest Summit, uh, Captain Bly, I think it was, that thing where he was in a boat and uh, recreated the mutiny on the bounty. Um, so a pretty full-on chap. Um, and I've not long finished reading um, his book called The Fear Bubble. And the concept um, I found very accessible, very useful and very effective. So I'm going to share that with you here. So if you want to um, have another little delve into uh, that a bit more than, than what we're going to cover in this little snippet of the podcast, then go and have a look at that. That's Ant Middleton's Fear Bubble. But essentially, what a lot of our nervousness anxiety and so on will be related to is 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 fear okay our fear of failure um our fear of not being good enough maybe the fear of what other people might think and again this kind of comes back as well to things that we've talked about already in here which is what other people think is not in my control might be able to influence it but it's not in my control. And if I try to control those things that aren't in my control, it's going to bring with it a host of negative um, emotions and such like. And the whole fear of failure thing is quite an interesting one. Because when people go, yeah, we'll often have a fear of failure. It comes down to ego. Nobody likes to fail, per se. Although it's only through failure that, that we'll make our biggest gains in climbing in the martial arts and so on you know some of the best lessons that we'll have will be through the failures that we have and there's ultimately two types of failure one that we expect which we would call a test and one that we don't expect and, you know, if, you, if you're bouldering or you're climbing or such like and you're, you're, you're expecting to push until you can go no more and therefore fail or you go, oh, this seems really hard for me, I'll give it a go anyway, see what happens and you fail, you kind of expect it. That's what an experiment is. You see and you, you're looking to test an experiment. And in those circumstances, that those, those kind of failures don't cause us any stress because, like I said, we, we expect them. So they don't tend to cause us as much stress. But it's often the unexpected failures that do cause us the stress, which where we go back to failure setting. And so if we ex- not expect to fail per se, but we've processed it, it's not so much of a, of a thing to us. Um, but 
sometimes I'll ask people when they say they've got a fear of failure, I'll say, is it a fear of failing or is it a fear of looking like a failure? If you could fail and nobody knew, so if you could take your assessment and nobody knew and you could take your assessment again and again and again until you passed and nobody knew you failed, would it be nearly as daunting? It's quite an interesting question, isn't it? Because when it comes down to the fear of looking like a failure, rather than just failing, well then, it's an ego thing. And again, that's something that's more in our control, which is not what other people think. What's in our control is being more conscious and going, hold on, why do I care what other people think? Yeah? Oh, but my boss is paying for it. Yeah? Well then, you pay for it. If, if that's the thing that's causing you stress, is the pressure of what your boss will think because he's paying for it, or she's paying for it, and you fail, well then if you're so caught up on that, guess what? You're far more likely to fail because you cannot stay focused can't stay in your lane you can't stay focused on the things you need to focus on okay so it's again something that, that that needs to be processed and worked through but I think it's very interesting that how many of us um, have a fear of looking like a failure or fear of not being good enough um, based on the expectations of others <laughs> or the expectations that we place on ourselves often because of the expectations placed on us by others even well-meaning people that might go oh mate you're going for that assessment oh mate you'll smash it you'll be brilliant yeah oh you'll be fine you'll be fine based on what do these people actually know the work you put in and the experience you've got and the days you've logged or not logged often not they're just trying to be nice but what that does is it puts more pressure on perceived pressure we put the pressure on. If we put it on, we can take it off. It's just not as easy. So anyway, let's get into this fear bubble thing. So what Ant Middleton found was that you know, he'd go off to do tours of Afghanistan with the military. And like a couple of weeks before he went, he would be feeling anxious. He would be feeling the physical sensations of fear, tight stomach, you know, uh, sweaty palms, just tightness of jaw, shortness of breath, you know, short, steady breaths, just increased heart rate and all the rest of it. And obviously that would build up and build up and build up. And, and he was beginning to get concerned about being able to function and be effective, be composed um, when he was in the battlefield, you know, when he was out on duty, out on tour. Um, but what he gained was this kind of fear bubble concept. Whether it came from him originally or somebody else, I don't know, but it, it, it works very, very well. But what he then had to decide was the difference between real and perceived risk. Because that's what fear is doing. Fear is, is, is basically going, hello, there's something here we need to look at. There is a risk. And then what we need to do, what we can do is say, okay, it's a risk of what? And in terms of an assessment, the risk isn't physical harm, it's usually embarrassment. 
we don't want to be embarrassed because we didn't pass. We have to then go and tell our friends that we didn't pass. Or in order to counter some of that embarrassment, we'll make up a whole ton of excuses in the lead up to or during to kind of pre-compensate or excuse not passing. Yeah? Rather than just going, well, here's what it is. No, I didn't have the prerequisite skills. So I now know what they are and I know what I need to do and I'll just go back to it. But we don't like that because we don't want to lose face. But he was experiencing this, this kind of big fear bubble. He was in this fear bubble, even though he then realised that there was no actual risk. He was in his living room two weeks before he left. But his mind, the default mindset, was catastrophizing. And the reason it does that is because it wants to keep you safe. It will exaggerate events. It will focus on the negative in order to keep you safe by causing you this fear so that you don't do it. But of course, you know, you, you're going to go for assessment. So that kind of fear is unneeded. All it does is just build up and build up. Or for some people, that fear does its job and they never go for assessment because the whole assessment thing is too much. Or if they have gone on assessment, they've had a negative experience that then just reinforces that mindset and says, see, 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 I told you we shouldn't have gone on this. And it just reinforces it and you get stuck in this loop. Just because you've had one negative experience at assessment, it uh, doesn't mean that all experiences at assessment are going to be negative. But the default mindset that, you know, the amygdala part of the brain that, that processes all information first in order to keep us safe, both physically and emotionally, um, will use that to further add to its argument that we shouldn't do assessments because you know, we're not good at them, or they make me feel uncomfortable, or we're just going to fail, or blah, 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 blah. But what he did is he realised that right there in his living room, two weeks before his tour of Afghanistan, there was no danger. And, and, and he, he visualised it as this bubble. And he was in this bubble two weeks before the tour, and we can do the same. You know, two weeks, two months before our assessment, why do we get concerned? Why waste precious mental energy worrying about something that we aren't currently able to control? We haven't failed, yet we're fast-forwarding to, oh, what if I fail? Uh, yeah, but what if you don't? And again, it's just that default mindset trying to keep us safe. If it creates enough fear, then assumes that we won't do it and therefore we won't be put in that position to be embarrassed or, or, or experience that failure. And obviously fear is good if it actually keeps us from physical harm. But all too often the physiological response, the cortisol and the adrenaline that, that, that's in our bodies when we're experiencing stress and, and fear of various things causes you know, stress in the body and causes these chemicals um, to stay in our body longer than they should do. But what he realised is that he could take this fear bubble and actually distill it down to particular times 
and therefore regain or maintain calm and composure. So he realised that he wasn't in danger two weeks ahead and that worrying about what was coming up served no point. And that even when he was walking into the military compound, the base, the military base, even in that military base, the risk was very low. Yes, there's more shells, but you're surrounded by elite, highly trained people, tons of armament, you know, tons of lookouts. You know, the, the risk of, of inside a military compound is pretty low. So there was no need to be in the fear bubble there. Then he realised when he was on kind of um, uh, a night, it's not an exercise, a night tour, uh, a task, he was set out to go and do what they call a hard arrest of some terrorist subject, suspects. So you would go into a, an enemy compound, kick the door in and, and, and arrest um, certain people that as he was walking to that compound, nobody knew they were going. Nobody knew they were there. They were walking at night in silence. So also there was no need to be scared or anxious right there and then. Even when he got to the compound, right there, sat outside that compound, nobody knew they were there. There was no need to be scared. Because right there and then, there was no risk. And so that wasn't where the fear bubble was. And he got to the point where he remembers being one side of a wall. And he could see the tip of the enemy's AK-47. And he had to, as part of his job, go around that corner and take out that enemy combatant. And he could visualise that the fear bubble, the fear was just as he went around that corner. And so instead of it being two weeks before deployment, he had shifted and shrunk that fear bubble and concentrated it to a very particular point. And he could visualize that where he was there, he was around the corner. And granted, if the combatant walked around the corner, he would bring the fear bubble with him. But he could prepare himself and then step around the corner and then he would enter the fear bubble. Then the adrenaline, the cortisol, the rapid breathing, all of those fight flight functions, which would just be fight, because that's what he's trained to do, would kick in and he could use them appropriately. Rather than wasting them for two weeks of, you know, mini adrenaline and cortisol and increased heart rates and so on, he could stay calm and composed, recognize when he had to step up or step in to that fear bubble. And then basically he also recognized when he would step back out. So he would step around that corner, take out that combatant quietly, and then he'd be back out the fear bubble. Then he'd go off to the next door. So it wasn't as if as soon as he entered the compound, he'd be in the fear bubble and he'd be in there for 45 minutes, an hour or whatever until the compound was clear. It was broken down into many more sections. He then went on in the book to talk about an email he got from a young lad. I want to say he's 14, but it might not be accurate, but he was a young lad, 
probably yeah, 14, maybe 15, who was about to do some exams, really, really stressed about the exams, fear of failure, to the point that he was thinking about ending it. Okay, heartbreaking. And he responded, and he explained about the fear bubble, and he explained that, and this is where so many useful lessons can be taken for us, both in all sorts of realms of our life, but we're looking at assessments. Um, but I've used this tons on rock climbing and anytime I feel a little bit, oh, I don't know if I should do this or not. And I can feel the, the default part of the brain trying to keep me safe from embarrassment or, you know, perceived risk. He said to the young lad that, that and he explained the fear bubble principle and that in the weeks leading up to assessment, you are not in danger. There is no danger, there is no risk. Even when you walk in the assessment hall, the exam hall, there is, that's not where the fear bubble is. When you sit down, the fear bubble isn't there. It's when you go to answer question number one, that's where the fear bubble is, because you're actually in and, and taking care of the exam. But then when you finish a question one, you're out of that fear bubble. You can take a breath, compose yourself, and the next fear bubble is question two. And it's the same process that he used in Afghanistan where he would have a number of fear bubbles and he would look to keep popping in and out of one and then going to the next and then going to the next. So instead of this like massive fear bubble of two weeks or even a two-day or a two-hour fear bubble. It was smaller, incremental little bubbles, little periods of time when you had to step in and focus, but then you would pop out again, take a breath, relax, recompose. And it might be that in certain situations, you could step into that fear bubble, realize you weren't quite ready, and you could step back out again. Obviously, for him in Afghanistan, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but I think he did talk about times when he felt he was about to go and kick a door and didn't feel quite ready. Took a couple of moments to sort his breathing out, get his game face on, then kick the door in and away he went. But we can use the same principles for us. Well, going back, the, the kind of 14, 15 year old kid um, came back saying he had an incredible time at his exams. It completely revolutionized it. It almost gamified it. So he found it enjoyable. And it was enjoyable to go and pop the different bubbles and he could experience and be much more self-aware of the physical sensations and use them and then pop out the other side and then experience a little bit of calm and then psych himself up for question number two. And he did really well as exams, this particular kid, um, which is incredible. But as a technique and a concept, I've used this um, so I'm currently recording this, uh, looking at the Peñon, the Ilfac, uh, just outside Calpe in the Costa Blanca. And a few days ago, I was up on the Bernier Ridge and we had some people there that were, you know, right on the limit of their comfort zone or well in their stretch zone. They were, you know, um, kind of nervous. They were on terrain that uh, they weren't particularly comfortable in. And very quickly, you know, whilst we were having a little break, um, I explained the fear bubble concept and it is, like I said, so easy to access. It's so understandable. 
that then for the rest of the the trip along this ridge, which is like triffin on steroids if you've never done it, um, you know, some abseiling climbing, good full-on scrambling, lots of exposure. We were talking about the fear bubble. It was just in the narrative of the group and to the point that it become like a bit of a talky point, quite jokey. You know, we joke when, when we were back out the other side of the, the, the fear bubble, but we could use it, I could use it to explain, okay, you know, there was maybe an abseil or a, a tricky section. And you go, well, right now, you're not in the fear bubble. The fear bubble is over there. You can see it and you can step up to it. And if you're not ready, you can step back, compose yourself. And then all you're going to do is step into that bubble, do the up, down, across, whatever it is, and then you back out the fear bubble. And so instead of, you know, the entire ridge, the entire day being one big fear bubble and, and, you know, the physiological response to fear, like I say, that the increased heart rate, uh, breathing rate, but shallow breaths, sweaty palms, tenseness uh, or tension being present for the entire day. It's only present for small periods and then you're back out and then you're relaxed and so on. And it's a very easy concept and a very useful concept to have. And hopefully it's one that you can then begin to see in your assessment. So let's say you're going for ML assessment, it's five days. Your fear bubble is not five days long, okay? It's not even day by day. Your fear bubble certainly isn't two weeks, two months before your assessment, okay? You break it down into chunks, you compartmentalize it. You recognize where the fear bubble is. Somebody asks you to go and deliver something. You've got to go and deliver um, a talk. You've got to go in. It's your turn to take the navigational lead. Okay, you compose yourself. Yep. You match your breathing, your posture, your facial expression with that of somebody who is calm. Okay. You adopt the physical representation of the mental state you wish to achieve, and then you step into that fear bubble, and then you deliver what you need to, and then when it's somebody else's turn to deliver a talk or do whatever, you know that you're back out of that bubble, and then you can relax. Rather than just being in this hugely heightened state all the time, okay? And it might be that, 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 that some bubbles are more intense than others because at assessment it might be that you still have to track where you're going and you might have questions asked of you but you're not directly in focus and it's just a way of being able to conceptualize it and visualize it compartmentalize it and make it um, a lot easier to deal with that pressure and notice exactly when the fear is, and use it. Not avoid it, okay? But use it. Use the heightened state of awareness and attention in short periods because you can't maintain that heightened state of awareness and attention because it's mentally and physically exhausting, okay? I'm having a rest day as I record this. Because I've had four days of climbing. I've not climbed for four days since I was out here last year. And so physically I'm fine. But mentally 
I'm tired. Making a lot of decisions, making a lot of judgments. And we begin to feel that. And the one way we can counter that is by being able to recognize when we need to be switched on and when we can relax, when we need to use the physiological benefits of fear and use them in a directive, focused, short period of time, use them in in a way that we can use it in a short period of time to get us through that fear bubble and out the other side. And the smaller and the shorter we can make that fear bubble, even if we've got 20 fear bubbles to pop during a day, so be it. Because each time we pop out of one, we can relax, we can recompose, we can regain, and away we go. So I really like the fear bubble as a concept. Um, and hopefully just this brief, you know, 25 minute um, explanation of it has been uh, useful. Okay. And also a little element, something else you want to maybe look at is, you know, just the fear of failure, fear of looking like a failure, um, real and perceived risk. And asking yourself, hold on, what is the risk here? Is it real? Is it perceived? Is it harm? Or is it embarrassment? If it's embarrassment, well, then that's within your control. It's your concern over what other people think. You can't control what other people think. You can try, but you can't control it. Um, So yeah, right. Hopefully that's a useful one. One of the most useful techniques and concepts I've used. Um, Very accessible. Uh, You can use it for all sorts of stuff. Kids can get it, but um, hopefully you can use it on your assessment as well. Right, next. Right, just a couple more sections left in this uh, Composure and Assessment special podcast. So um, let's look at this. Get out of your head. So a couple of little tips here. Um, There's a saying which goes, you can't outthink a thought. Okay. Um, There are... If, if you follow or are aware of um, Professor Steve Peters' work and the chimp paradox, where you've got, he, he breaks the brain down into three component parts, okay? The computer, storage facility, um, uh, the human, which is our cognitive, rational, executive function kind of uh, part of our brain, and the chimp which is the amygdala, the instinct, um, uh, very much focused on keeping us alive or keeping us safe physically and emotionally. And the chimp is five times stronger than the human and the computer is 20 times uh, stronger or faster. Um, Also similar to if you've read um, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. The idea that there's fast thinking parts of the brain, slow thinking parts of the brain. Um, what we're looking at here is the chimp part of the brain or the fast thinking part of our brain, the, the reaction part of our brain, the, the, the thing, the part that deals with um, fear and keeping us safe. Um, 
that's very much responsible for kind of any unwanted thoughts or actions that we take, okay? Feelings of overwhelm, anxiety, nerd, all of these are very much attributed to that chimp part of the brain, that default mindset that's there to try and keep us safe. And the human part of the brain is going to have a really tough time trying to outthink the chimp part of the brain. Okay, because it's just one part is just much quicker, much more powerful as it has to be in order to keep us alive. And so what we need to do is kind of think around or program the computer better or try to shift essentially from, from a neuroscience point of view, shift the blood flow from the amygdala, from the chimp part of the brain um, to the frontal lobes. Um, shift the blood flow and the oxygenated blood flow from one part of the brain to another. And one way in which we can do that um, is to write things down. It's going to be very hard to do that just by thinking alone. Okay. But there's ways in which you can do that. Um, physical exercise is a great way to do that. Um, breathing, muscle tension, all of these things come into play, but also writing things down and dealing with fact, truth, and logic is a key element. So whatever our concerns are over our assessment, getting them written down, writing down things like it is what it is, doing our failure setting on paper, writing down um, how you want to be on paper, staying in your lane and, and describing how you want to be on assessment and how you want to stay in your lane. Um, writing that on paper is key. Writing down and describing and getting clear on the fear bubbles, where they are, where they might be inside your assessment and how you want to be inside that. Doing that on paper is a great way to shift blood flow. Because all that creative writing is a very frontal part of our brain kind of process. Yep. Um, and it captures things on paper and it's very difficult to kind of uh, dismiss it or argue against something that's on black and white. Yeah. Because thoughts go off on our head like fireworks on, on New Year's Eve, right? Yet when we write things down, it's more ordered. And we can use this same technique or same approach, just applied slightly differently, when we're on assessment. So what I've seen, I used to um, assess people um, doing rescue assessments. So every, I think it was like eight weeks, I'd go to um, a site or two and assess a certain uh, level of staff for rescues off of a ropes course. Okay. And some people just had it so dialed, it was second nature. It had basically been way programmed into the, a lot of the actions had been programmed into the computer. It, it needed hardly any thought from the human part of the brain. Okay, it was very well dialed, very habitual. But for others, it wasn't. And, and again, that they, they suffered at being watched. You know, um, they suffered at, at the assessment process. And you could see them getting more and more kind of tunnel vision and more and more stuck inside their own heads. 
And one tip I would give these people, and I will share this with you, is to get out of your head. And granted, in the middle of an assessment, 40 foot up a tree, you know, you can't exactly start writing stuff down. But in that situation, and maybe in your assessment, talk things out. Speech is ordered, controlled. It's very easy for people when they're stressed to hold their breath. Yeah, and if you're holding your breath, well, you're not getting enough oxygenated blood to anything, let alone your brain, and therefore you wonder why your motor skills drop off and your concentration drops off because you're not breathing much, if at all, for, for, for little periods of time. Yeah, so talking will get you to breathe. Okay, also because speech is ordered and controlled and structured, that will help shift blood flow from that you know, a, a catastrophic, ruminative part of the brain and into the more creative frontal executive function part of the brain, okay? So it might be something like just talking through what you're doing. And this will also be useful for some assessors. They don't want to hear you talk, but you, I would just have done this before. And you go, they might go, I don't need to hear you talk. And they go, well, that's fine. I like to talk through what I'm doing because... And I'll explain what I've just literally explained to you. It's all in good that you don't want to hear it. It's, I'm doing it for me, not for you. But equally, uh, sometimes I like it when, as an assessor, candidates talk through what they're doing in their head. Or, or talk through what they're doing rather than doing it in their head. Certainly if it's a safety critical thing. Because I want to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. Because certain something might be like, uh, why are you doing that? But if you're talking through, I'm just doing this because it's ready because I'm going to then go do this and this and this. Uh, okay, that makes sense. So rather than me having to ask a question or interrupt somebody's flow, if you can get to the point that your technical skills are dialed away enough that you can talk through and, and, and provide narrative as to what you're doing, even if you're doing it kind of in your head very much kind of in, in, in the conscious mind kind of your self-talk is very firm in like I'm doing this I'm doing this or you're just muttering it under your breath that's one thing that's great but even if you're doing it out loud okay um, clip that carabiner flip it over squeeze it up squeeze test pull this rope in tight lock off the lever clip it through the friction crab blah 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 or okay let's Take a bearing, drop to the knee, turn to 180, blah, 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 blah. You're just talking it through in, a, in an ordered and structured way. And also, if you're looking to be an instructor, you, could, it, it, you can use it as a way of explaining to students or clients what you are doing. So it's also increasing your, your, your kind of teaching ability. So it's got lots of different um, benefits, but getting out of your head, if you find that you're the kind of person that when you get a little bit stressed, you get a bit um, introspective, you get a bit, um, that's the word, introvert, where you go inside, you know, you, you shut up and you shut down a little bit. Practicing ahead of your assessment. Don't try and just think, I'll try and do this on the morning of your assessment. Put the prep in now during the tasks that you do. Yep. Anything that you find remotely challenging or stressful, get into the habit of being able to do it to the point that you can narrate it 
concisely, clearly, and it will shift blood flow, like I say, from that more reactionary part of the brain, default part of the negative part of the brain into the more creative executive function part of the brain and keep you breathing, keep you more oxygenated, blood going around your body and will slow and provide order for you. Okay, so that's a useful thing to do mid-assessment. But equally, getting out of your head and being able to write stuff down is a good way to process the neurophysiological act of writing stuff down. Pen and paper um, has got a host of different benefits. Okay, a host of different benefits. Um, like I say, slowing yourself down, capturing things on paper, um, you know, providing clarity and so on. So getting out of your head is just another little tipster for you um, as we go through this. And there's going to be just one more that I'm going to leave you with um, before a little summary. So let's get on to this last one. Okay, last section on this composure and assessment <clears throat> special. Uh, and we're going to talk marginal gains, marginal losses, a particularly favourite topic of mine. So you may well have heard of the marginal gains compound effect um, kind of principle or concept before. Uh, Dave Brailsford of British Cycling, Team Sky, used it to, you know, record-breaking um, gold-winning performances at the Olympics and obviously um, taking the first British winners of the Tour de France. Um, but we can apply the same principles um, in our everyday. And the compound effect, the aggregate effect, if you like, is the idea that, that small things do add up significantly. They are greater than the sum of their parts, if you like. Um, and also the thing that I like to add is, is that we talk marginal gains, but let's also talk marginal losses. If we are not stacking things in our favour, we are by default stacking things against us. Okay, nothing's really going to be sat neutrally. So, so, if we're not enhancing or taking care of our sleep, if we're neglecting our sleep, then that's going to be working against us. It might only be 2% here, 3% there, 5% there, or whatever. Same with our hydration. If we're not taking care of our hydration, if, if we're going, oh, yeah, but I'm drinking like tons of tea, coffee, you know, Coca-Cola, or whatever, and you go, yeah, but you know that that's not the same as just drinking, you know, two litres of water a day, yeah? And if you're not properly hydrated, it's going to be working against you. I, I sometimes hear people go, yeah, I just don't need to drink much. And like, that's a bit like going, yeah, my car, you know, the fuel gauge never goes down, so clearly I don't need to fill it up. <clears throat> Your body needs water okay having like half a liter of water a day is not going to be beneficial to 
you know, decent water, decent mental and physical functioning, you know. Same with nutrition. I'm not here to tell you what you should, shouldn't be eating per se, but equally, you can't expect to be functioning on top form if you're cramming yourself with energy drinks, sugar, and so on. And so you, and then, then you sugar crash in, and then you're stacking tons of caffeine, so you're spiking, you're crashing, you're all over your shop, you're eating a lot of processed food, a lot of carby food, so you're very lethargic. You're not going to be stacking things in your favour. Yeah? And these things will be working against you. But if you are able to, you know, work on your nutrition a little bit. And we're talking like, you know, what small thing could you do to stack things in your favour? We're not talking massive, taking massive, huge action. Could you get 20 minutes more sleep? Could you improve the quality of your sleep? Okay? Could you improve by just 200 mils of water? Your hydration, just to start. Just chip away, a little bit here, a little bit there. And you will not think that it will do much. But the thing is, is, if you stack these things up, then they will make a big difference. Okay? And in a similar principle, we're looking to either reduce friction or hassle. And we can apply this to our assessment. Having things dialed where we know packing our bag is just nailed or if there's an if our rucksack is just really annoying or if our coat is really annoying you know even when you get one out of the house if you've got a zip or a coat that's really irritating in the shop or in your house if it's a faff in the house it will be hell on the hill and if you're Anything that's slightly niggly when you're not in a stressful environment, when you're in a stressful environment and you're cold, tired, and you've been focusing for a long amount of time, um, in the dark, in the rain, on assessment, if it's a faff, it's going to be one of those things that could potentially tip you over the edge, the old straw that broke the camel's back type thing. So it's just looking, and, I'm, and on previous courses I've had a bunch of people that have taken this concept and gone, oh, I've done this, I've, I, I added little pull cords to all of my coats, I sorted out a little hassle that was niggling me with my rucksack, I tweaked my boots so that they were just that little bit easier, my laces were always a bit too long, so I put some shorter laces in. Tiny things, but they just removed hassle. One less thing, one less energy leak, one less pain in the ass will allow you to focus on what you need to do. Having things dialed, being very habitual, knowing how you like to pack your bag and, and having things, having a set process for your food and your whatever it happens to be so that when you're on assessment, it's one less thing to think about. Therefore, you have more decision-making mental energy to deal with the unknowns, i.e. what you're going to be asked, when you're going to be asked it, how you're going to be asked it, and so on. But if you have to faff about, or you think, oh man, I don't even want to go for a wee because I can't even get into my waterproofs to be able to go for a wee, what a pain in the arse. 
that's going to be playing on your mind, even if it's just a small amount. And that's one thing that's taken up your precious mental reserves that should be or could be spent um, focusing on what's being asked of you in the assessment. Does that make sense? So have a look at all sorts of things, whether it's your, um, you know, if you're going for a rock climbing instructor, climbing wall instructor, paddle sports, how you pack your kit, set your kit in your rucksack to get it out your rucksack. I remember um, for MIA, um, you know, how you pack your rucksack so that when things come out, I knew exactly what it wasn't. I didn't pull out a rack and then dump it on the floor in a big pile of crap. And then I have to sort through that and get annoyed by rope tangles and bits and bobs. If I was going to get a rope and you have to use ropes out of the assessment provider's stores, I would always, if it was my rope that I was going to use, I would recoil it. I'd get it out of stores, doesn't matter who coiled it, I don't care if it's a mountain guide or whoever coiled it, I'm coiling it. Because then I can't blame anybody else. If it's tangled, that's down to me. I can't be going, oh, what idiot tangled this, what idiot coiled it, blah, blah. No, I coil it the way I want to coil it and I'm familiar in coiling it. And then in which case, away I go, it's one less thing. That's if I can control that. If I can use my rack, then I'll use my rack because I know where things are, but I've also practiced well enough that if I get given a complete random rack, I can, it is what it is. I've got what I've got. I'll do what I can with it. Okay, let's go. So where you can, it's removing friction and hassles in small ways and they do stack up so that a niggle doesn't become a hassle, which doesn't become a distraction and so on. And things start, you know, spiraling just because you get really hacked off every single time you go to put a coat on or you avoid bothering to do your shoelaces up because you it's a real faff and a hassle with the gaiters which are a pain in the bum and so you don't bother and so you don't adjust your boots and it means that your boots are sloppy then you get a blister and then that's on your mind and you're not focusing on other things you get what I mean it's the it's the marginal losses but if we treat ourselves to some gaiters that are easy to use or we don't faff about and, and we sort our boots out so our laces aren't too long or whatever it happens to be and we do it in enough time that it eliminates that hassle, we are taking control of the things that are in our control and we're removing these energy leaks and therefore taking a marginal, potential marginal or significant loss and turning it into a little cheeky marginal gain. And all of these things will free up mental headspace. Yeah. Allow us to focus on the things that we need to focus on and not get caught up because we've got poor drills, we've got poor, um, you know, discipline with our kit and so on. So hopefully that's a, a little cheeky one, just one to end with, something you can look at, whether, like I say, it's kit, it's uh, processes, it's lesson plan, it's how you use a crag, how you teach something, what you take with you, um, anything you can do to make your life, even if it's just 1% here, 2% there, 
a little bit of gain here, a little bit of gain there, it will add up. Trust me. Okay, and it's quite a fun little cheeky thing to do. You can do it right now. Yep. So that's that. Last little tactic. Just a little, uh, let's go on to uh, just a little bit of a um, conclusion and, 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 and uh, bring things together. Okay, people, so there you have it. Um, best part of two hours um, of content, of concepts, of approaches, of perspectives on how to increase composure at assessment. If nervousness at assessment, uh, anxiety, the overwhelm of, of the idea of assessment, or if you've had a negative experience at assessment, is something that that's, troubles you, then my advice would be to apply some of what I've talked about. The issue here is, is that Although you have spent time, and I massively appreciate if you've listened this far, um, I massively appreciate you doing so. And it is my sincere aim that you take this, use it, and get a ton of benefit out of it. That you don't experience the, the things that I've experienced. You know, that you're able to have a great time at assessment. Um, as I've said before, your assessment is the best training course you'll ever do. Okay, you will learn so much, or as much at assessment as, as you will be shown. Okay, and if you go into it with that kind of attitude, you, you're gonna get a, a great, um, you'll have a great experience. And a common question is, you know, how do I know if I'm ready for assessment? Well, assuming you've got all the prerequisites, you, you've you can tick all the boxes in the syllabus. You, you've got more than enough, or more than enough uh, prerequisite days or experience, if that's what you require. Um, then the only way to know is to go on assessment. Having a friend assess you, or even going for a mock assessment, never feels the same. That the situation of of being on assessment is never going to feel the same. The only way to know is to go on assessment. That is the point of an assessment. It is to assess where you are. You are going on assessment and you're asking, or by going on assessment, you're asking, hi, tell me where I am. I think I'm ready, but you're the assessor. You tell me. Okay, that's the approach that we need to be... Um, we need to be having and uh, as I've said before it's your assessor's job to say whether you meet the requirements or not and if not they'll give you a, a defined action plan as to how to fill in any gaps that you may have um, like I say there's a bunch of stuff inside this this podcast that hopefully you can use and you can take forward but I've got this thing, growth, progress. You know, if you, if you want to be more composed, if you want to be a, the type of pers who, person who is composed, 
who can be effective, and by effective I mean deliver a strong performance without being hindered by you know, catastrophic or, or regretful or wishful thinking type thoughts, then what you need is the considered, consistent application of information. So what I've given you here is some information. Okay, information on its own, right there, here, it's not going to do you an awful lot of good. You have to take this and you have to apply it in the right way, that's the considered part, consistently. Just listening to a podcast is rarely going to suddenly, you know, do much for you. There are occasions, there are examples when you, you might receive a piece of information that um, provides a real perspective shift, a real uh, paradigm shift, if you like, where you go, oh, I didn't even think of it in that way. Wow. Oh, I see things differently. You know, you just see things differently. You, you maybe uttered the words, you know, I see where you're coming from now. You know, you've just... Uh, experienced a different um, perspective on something and maybe this this podcast maybe the information inside here will do that but I'm a big advocate mostly through the martial arts but also through rock climbing and so on of to know is to feel if you go and put some of this in practice maybe outside of your assessment or even when you've done it inside and you've applied it to your assessment and you have experienced something different as a result, then the, the perspective shift will be more profound or, or more visceral maybe. But if you just listen to this and don't do anything with it, 100%, it won't do you anything. Yeah. But as I've said before, take some notes, write this down. I've, I've broken it down into small chunks and sections so you can go back and listen to it like 20 minutes here, 10 minutes there. You know, there's two hours of content, but you can listen to it in small little sections, all differently labeled. Okay. But my key advice is to do something, write it down. Think about the smallest, simplest tool, tactic, step that you can make to apply this right now. Yeah. It might not be an assessment. It might be something else that you're concerned or you're fearful about that you've been avoiding because you're not really sure you want to do it. Can you use the fear bubble approach? Can you write stuff down? Can you verbalize it? The stuff I've spent time explaining inside here has got a host of different applications. Like I say, I use this when I'm rock climbing. Yep. And in rock climbing, you are managing real and perceived risk. There is real risk of, of physical harm. And then, you know, it can shift from perceived to real and back again in, in, in an instant, you know. Um, there's a lot of unknown risks and so on, but it's about compartmentalizing it rather than looking at, say, some even just a 30 meter route. You know, you're going, OK, where are my rests? You know, so that this section is hard, but then I'm at the rest or I'm at some protection. And so I'm 
the fear bubble is getting through that tough section and getting to the rest. Once I'm on the rest, I'm out the other side of that particular intense fear bubble. There is still a, a, a smaller or a, or a thinner, less intense fear bubble, but it's more manageable. That That's okay. So it's compartmentalizing it and so on and breaking things down in the brain. It's, it's a lot easier for the brain to to deal and process that you don't get so overwhelmed okay so like i've said before at the beginning of this you've got my email uh, at pro edge project on um facebook and at the and the intro of this is also my phone number if you want to send me a text or so on so the options from here for you take what i've shown you go use it if you use it and it helps you out on assessment, I would love to know. Because let's face it, we all want to do what we do so that we can have a positive impact on other people. And if what I've done has helped you in some small way, it would be really great to hear that. Um, it really would. If you'd like some more help, then there's options for that. If you want to be put down for an online interactive training course where we go more specific, we, we look at specific personal obstacles to, um, to, to pass an assessment. If I have enough people, I might put a course on. Okay. Um, or I also offer one-to-one -one coaching. So if you go, I actually want to uh, dial down, some of this stuff resonates. Um, but I, I, I've got some kind of personal situations or, or experiences that I want to figure out how to apply some of these tactics to or some personal obstacles between me and, and, and wanting to go on assessment or being composed at assessment, then, you know, the first thing we would do, the simplest thing we would do, and the thing that is in your control, if that is you, you've probably got your phone in your hand now. So you open up the message app, you tap in 07889 and you send me a message. JP, can we arrange a quick 30 minute chat for free? Okay, and we can just chat and see if that, because it might be that I, I'm, I'm not able to help you with that, but it might be that I am. Okay, and then we can go from there. Nothing more than that. But if nothing else, you've got two, hour, two hours worth of really, really effective um, approaches, little tactics, tools, if you like. Um, but get on and use them. And if you do, I would love to hear how you get on. Um, thanks very much for your time. And yeah, I'll uh, catch you on the next one.